I am wearing my white pumps for this occasion, um, which is a fabulous reference to the film we're going to be talking about today. I am John McDonald, American playwright, uh, podcast co-host, and many other American things. Go baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie. Hello, Magnus. Hello, everyone. And I'm Magnus Alexander, uh, um, British writer, author extraordinaire, and general knave. Ooh, that's fun. <laughs> Being a general knave is very useful for today's, uh, today's podcast because we were talking about one of my favorite films, not from 1995, but from 1996, a year down the road from the other <laughs> movies we've talked about so far. And this is going to be the first Wives Club. Um, and I kept seeing Instagram posts about stills from the first Wives Club and my birthday is next week. Uh, so by the time you hear this live, um, it will be past my birthday, but I like to celebrate things I like. I have seen first Wives Club many times so if I leave something out, I'll feel bad about it later. But this is the kind of thing where I've seen it so much that not only can I quote it, I could probably watch it in my head if I wanted to. <laughs> um, and it's a great movie, really great quotes, great soundtrack. Uh, everyone was really excited to work on this film in 96. And so I'm excited to talk about it and remind people about it mm -hmm. and its wonderful legacy because it has a really great legacy in pop culture too. And on the opposite end of the scale, I have heard of this movie. I have never seen it. I have never seen the trailer. Um, so I'm approaching it from the opposite end that you are, John. So I would say that in in this it, it, overall, this will be a good chance for me to find out a bit more of the movie, and also to find delve a bit into your thoughts of why it's such a great classic because I've seen the phrase cult classic bandied around for this movie. So oh, I, totally, intend, yeah. I intend to find out and challenge you, sir, on why okay. it deserves such a lofty title. Oh, the first thing yeah. I would tell you about the First Wives Club is mm. that there's a certain segment of the gay population age 35 plus, my age, about thereabout, um, that can quote this movie because it came out in that weird space where we had just started aging out of Power Rangers but we weren't quite on teen dramas yet. And so mostly a lot of us, not me, I saw this on an HBO free weekend the first time halfway through the movie. So I didn't actually see the start of the movie for a long time. Uh, but yeah, most of this is if you had a single mom and you were a gay kid, or if you had a mom that was like going through uh, like her midlife crisis, this was this was very much a, your mom had you watch this and then you unironically fell in love with it yourself sort of film. Uh, and this was 96, so this is uh, three years after Hocus Pocus where Sarah Jessica Parker and Bette Midler had previously worked together. Mm. Um, and this was years after Diane Keaton had worked with um, the girl who plays her daughter in the movie, whose name I always forget. Um, uh, who is is she on the IMDb page? I pulled up the IMDb page. So Jennifer Dundas, who plays uh, the lesbian Chris in this movie, who's really great, really great character, um, had previously played uh, Diane Keaton's daughter in another movie that I've never seen called Mrs. Sorrel, it looks like. Um, so there's a lot of legacy to this film, both going before it and coming after. So, yeah. Mm. Um, you've dropped a couple of big names already, um, 
Diane Keaton, Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, from my brief foyer into looking up some details of this movie before our conversation today, it does seem like it was quite a power list of established actors that got involved in this. Um, it's also the first film for Timothy Oliphant. Uh, he plays a director in kind of a cameo appearance, the same way Heather Locklear mm. does. Um, but this mm. is the first time we see Timothy Oliphant on the big screen, and he's super young. And I actually didn't know it was <laughs> Timothy Oliphant until I was researching for this episode. So even <laughs> I'm learning things today. It's not, isn't life, though, one big learning experience? Oh, that's true. That's why that's why I couldn't do Drag Race because my references would be like not of the '80s, and so RuPaul would get so <laughs> mad at me. Hmm. <laughs> Looking into the people that were in this, um, what re the role one that really struck me, um, just to quickly name drop the other major actress, Goldie Horn, a uh, wonderful woman. Um, but the one that really struck me was Maggie Smith being in this movie. And she's so um, good in this movie as Gunilla Garson Goldberg, who's not just a first wife, she's a second wife, a third wife, a fourth wife, and a fifth wife, <laughs> made wealthy by her former husband's death. Like, she's the upper aristocratic class of, this is like not even her doing the Downton Abbey thing. This is her legitimately just being at the top of the New York social ladder. Um, Maggie Smith is fabulous in this movie in the two, uh, two and a half scenes she's in, she completely captivates. There's a scene with her and Sarah Jessica Parker having lunch. And Sarah Jessica Parker is playing the best weird socialite climber bimbo airhead ever. And Maggie Smith is just judging her with her Maggie eyes. And even if she hadn't spoke, you would have gotten the whole scene and everything. It's an amazing, it's just an amazing lunch scene. Um, yeah. It, you're making this movie sound like it's Campus Christmas, sir. Can you claim such a title? It's, I think, it, it, so it has some camp moments. It's definitely a comedy. I don't know that this is surreal enough to be camp. I think it's certainly hmm. pop culture. Um, the background I chose for, my, for, for our podcast today is the Liechtenstein portrait um, that takes place in the movie. And so Lichtenstein is part of it, pop art is part of it. Dionne Warwick um, has the opening song on the soundtrack. The, the Oh, what is the name of the song? Uh, Dionne Warwick sings the first song uh, that opens the movie, uh, Wives and Lovers, uh, which mm. is about how to please your man. It's a very old school song. Uh, this has the same kind of soundtrack vibe as My Best Friend's Wedding, where it's very pop, mm. but it's very accessible to a lot of people. Um, yeah, so it's really, it's not camp, but it really is of the 90s. It's a very pop moment. It almost has more mm -hmm. of a Nancy Myers feel where you kind of get those lush spaces that are um, made for the people in the film. Um, mm -hmm. Also, there's an apartment where there's a fountain in, because Sarah Jessica Parker thinks that that's the height of a class is to have a working fountain in her living room. Um, which is kind of camp and kind of amazing at the same time. <laughs> it's just like this three-tiered outdoor fountain in her penthouse suite that she's sharing <laughs> with her sugar daddy, essentially. So, Ooh, sugar daddy. <laughs> um, this, a fountain living room sounds very simish, I have to say. But I, I, yeah, that, that sounds like Sarah Jessica Parker's character, for sure. 
<laughs> so was this before Sex and City? I forget when Sex and City was. I think it was. So here's something interesting, and I'm going to talk mm. about this, um, and you're just going to have to bear with me for a minute. Mm. So in the book that mm. this is based on from 1992, so basically the book has an unreleased manuscript that's picked up in 91, and then the book is released in 92. And the book itself is not a comedy. The book itself is overtly queer. There's a there's a jewel thief subplot that doesn't exist in the film. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. And so Sarah Jessica Parker's character that she plays in the movie in the book is very much like Sarah Jessica Parker's character from Sex and the City, only she doesn't know how to access the power that Sarah Jessica Parker has in Sex and the City. So there's a weird timeline where this book comes out Sarah Jessica Parker gets cast in this movie to play that character, Shelley, and then Sex and the City with Candace Bushnell happens and it takes off. And like somehow Sarah Jessica Parker, play Sarah Jessica Parker play went from playing like cute girl in a uh, in a high school in the in the TV show she was in to playing like Shelley to playing her Sex and the City character. So it's not long after, but I feel like Sex and the City is like a 99 thing. Like I feel like it's very mm. turn of the, turn into the new century kind of thing. Mm. The thing, The thing is what strikes me having looked at some of the fashion from the First Wives Club, it seems to be very much like it really captures the, the women of that era, um, like smart suits, very boisterous women by the looks of it uh, it almost gives me nanny vibes in some aspects not the over-the-top outfits that Fran was wearing yeah. but the general vibiness if that makes sense would you say that's the case I would say that's the case and I think because the leads and everyone that worked on this movie wanted to work with them too like mm. I, I know that when I was looking at the Wikipedia page it was like this revitalized the career of the three leads and I'm like Ben Midler didn't need that help. Diane Keaton <laughs> was doing fine, and Goldie Hawn had no problem. Like, Goldie Hawn, after Laugh-In, was so successful, she started her own mm. production company, so she'd have roles that were outside. So when you look at, like, Overboard and movies that Goldie Hawn did that were fabulous, like Private Benjamin, those are all her movies that she helped mm. produce. Um, so Goldie Hawn has always been very smart. Uh, Diane Keaton in like Annie Hall was setting standards for fashion and Bette Midler um, as a rock and roll icon had already been doing so like everything this movie is done with purpose and everything is done on point. Um, mm. And a lot of people think about the fashion of the, the ending scene with the women in the matching white liberation pantsuit dress combos with the big kicky white pumps. Mm. Um, but there's other great fashions. Uh, Goldie Hawn in leather pants as Elise in the gay bar is a really great scene. Uh, mm. The whole gay bar scene is just a really great scene because it's probably one of the only lesbian bars that actually looks like a lesbian bar in pop culture TV. Uh, shout out <laughs> to Tom. Um, yeah, e even, even Stockard Channing's scene in the beginning uh, after they get through the preview of going back to college and showing how they all met. And that first scene with Stockard Channing showing her, uh, I don't want to spoil this, so I'm trying to figure out how to say it without spoiling it, but she has this kind of haggard, uh, not wasted, but this very much like 
the world has used me kind of look. And it's that very much like mm-hmm. Mame with the bathrobe going off the shoulder. I'm very angry, but I have nowhere to put it kind of vibe. And so like the the spaces and the fashion really work for both the time period, but also the film. Um, mm. The great scene with Sarah Jessica Parker being like, Dan Hedaya, unzip me in a way to like seduce him. Is, mm. It's also an amazing scene with Sarah Jessica Parker. She just threw herself. This is her doing that same thing she did in Hocus Pocus, where she just kind of threw herself into the role. And you can see why she got cast in Sex in the City because of it. Because she just threw herself mm. right there into Shelley, and it's fabulous. Mm. And dare I say that once she was in Sex and the City, it really overshadowed a lot of um, her other work. Uh, when you think Sarah Jessica Parker, you automatically think Sex yeah. and the City. So it, to a degree, like her success is also, dare I say, typecaster somewhat but um, she seems to have been doing very well anyway in life so yeah and she's done some other stuff if you've ever seen failure to launch it's a really Mm. interesting movie and concept Mm. um she did mars attacks she was in mars attacks which is one of the best cult movies ever so she is in mars attacks so she does camp Uh, she was in ed wood which i don't think Mm. anybody saw her in (laughs) i don't think anybody remembered (laughs) but like She's also got Hocus Pocus to her credit, which is well, something true. Really Very true. She was in Flight of the Navigator, the longest Disney movie ever. Um, and I'm including all the Marvels. I don't know if you've ever seen Flight of the Navigator, but it is a no. 90 minute movie that feels like it's four hours. It's yeah, almost, almost, almost like a plane journey. Oh. Almost like a plane journey, except it's a science fiction movie. And it's just, it's a lot. Um, oh, dear. Yeah. So Sounds like a fantasy. <laughs> it, 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 in any case, Sarah Jessica Parker is one of those actresses that had a really great career. And if she hadn't had Sex in the City, she would have been fine. But she had Sex in the City and she married Matthew Broderick. So I can't be mad at her, you know? No, no. Oh, no. You, at, at the end of the day, if anything, one should be jealous, <laughs> which, but in a totally understandable way. But yeah. moving on from that, you mentioned before about the appearance of a gay lesbian bar um, within the movie. So the 90s were really a period when you start to see depictions of queer people coming out, um, being in the media and such. It wasn't always handled tactfully. Um, I could probably put together a whole list of offensive stereotypes, Um, but some stuff was handled well. So how would you say the depictions were in this movie. So what's interesting is that almost all of the scenes with uh, with Chris and them, who is the lesbian daughter of Diane Keaton's mother, Annie, um, mm. almost all of the scenes with her, except for the really great one with her really great line where she's like, I'm a lesbian, a big one. Um, <laughs> they're all in the trailer. Uh, so a lot of what you see of queer culture in the film is in the trailer. And even though the trailer mm-hmm. features scenes and dialogue that was changed from the film itself, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Chris is an excellent side character because she doesn't pull focus, but she has a very rich kind of inner life that you get glimpses of. Um, and I think as far as gay bars, this is probably one of the best. Like, So when I've watched Matt Baum, he's talked about the gay bar and married with children. He's talked about the gay bar and Maude. Um, mm-hmm. He's talked about the 
there wasn't a gay bar in the Golden Girls, but there was that scene where Blanche thinks she's in a gay bar because her brother Clayton is there. Mm. Um, but so on a scale of like gay bars in pop culture, I think that this was purposely made as one of the best, one of the most authentic and one of the most liberating uh, because really this movie mm. is a movie about finding liberation in a different phase of your mm. life. Because um, the movie is really about changes and phases of life, which is why it so resonates with the middle-aged mom. Mm. Um, cast. Yeah. Then subversively, it sounds almost like it could resonate with other people that are also um, going through changes and such. Um, from oh, what yeah. you're they, saying, um, they lean into the queerness of this like heavily. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can stress how much that in 96 like in 92 with the mutants in x-men i don't think i can stress how both this was of its time but also still shocking it's a very weird place where there was acceptance um the aids crisis was a thing but it wasn't as much we had Mm -hmm. more hiv medications at this point um, and of course, I, I was young then, so I can't actually speak to that because I didn't experience mm-hmm. that. But in my mind, yes. that's how I think about it. But yeah, so it's a weird headspace where there's acceptance and will and grace is on its way. So there's yes. the ability to really do camp and the ability to really both poke, poke fun at gay culture with love, but also advance gay culture. It, it's mm. a very weird kind of space to be in where it's like it's both gratuitous and it's trying to score points, but it's also acknowledging something in society. It, it's a very weird space. And I feel like even the flirting scene that the that the character who kind of looks like Rosie O'Donnell has uh, mm. with Goldie Hawn in the gay bar, that is done really well, authentically. It works in the story. You find out quite a bit about Elise in that it's about Elise's desire to be seen and loved. And it's not done as a joke. It's not like an ew moment, like the like the like the kiss in Supernatural mm. between Bobby and Crowley, where it's done for like laughs and it's like an ew thing. Mm. Like there's like a Chris is interrupted on this date at a gay bar she's having by her mom, and her mom is like at a gay bar. If you watch the trailer, it's almost verbatim for what happens in the movie, but it's the idea of mom, you're in, you're in a gay bar. And she's like, yes, and I'm here to support you, sweetie. And it's just like the best <laughs> cringiest middle-aged mom moment ever. Cause like, I'm just, my mom wouldn't have done that. I don't think, but like, I'm just imagining like being at a gay bar and then your mom shows up in the middle of like, not your date, but like you're having a drink with the girl you're obviously yeah. kind of interested in kind of thing. It's, it's a great scene. Um, yeah. And I don't remember if Chris is even a I think Chris is a character in the book. She does the same function in the book, uh, but Annie, Diane Keaton as Annie has a completely different trajectory um, okay. in a way than the one in the film. But in the film, um, it really works. Chris is a really great character. She's very strong-willed. She does not want her mother and father to get back together. Um, she yeah. actually wants Annie to stand on her own. So in that way, it's a really great character that, that is rooting for her mom's happiness as opposed to being the divorced kid character in a college that is like, my parents can still get back together. You know, she's all in for the plot to destroy her father's life. Like, she's like like 190% in my dad is a scumbag. Yes, please, let's destroy him. It's Destroy the patriarchy. Destroy my father. The patriarchy is bad, but my father is worse. So let's start there and work our way up, is kind of her thinking, I think. 
it almost sounds like it's leading into this uh, the theme from the 90s of how society or at least the media was starting to show um young women and young girls as more liberated and independently minded persons um to give a to go back to a previous example with the nanny you had um fran helping maggie to find her own two feet and it sounds like in this film that the daughter doesn't necessarily need that because she's already a quite independently minded woman so in a sense it's like the flip of that she's helped she wants to, her mother to find her independence not need yeah. the reliance on a man even someone that was her husband for quite some time hmm, that's an interesting contrast it's also a really interesting dynamic because annie's mom is also there so there's three generations and you have mm-hmm. this interesting scene in the kitchen um in the in the end of the second act when everything is going when everything is splintering apart and like Hmm. All of the emotions are happening. Um, and Eileen Heckart plays Catherine, who is Annie's mom, and then Chris is Annie's daughter. And hmm. there's a scene where the mom and the daughter, even though they have very different views on how Annie should live her life, are there to comfort her. It has a lot of those vibes of Sabrina's conversation with the women in her life right hmm. before her wedding. Um, it, ha- it has that kind of like, not quite coven vibe, but a very much like, this is about women coming together uh, once the men have kind of used us up, but we still have inner power kind of thing. There's a lot of that in the, this movie. The bonds of the sisterhood. Yeah, so it's just... very practical magic, divine secrets of the Yaya sisterhood. It's very that, um, but mm. in a very different way. And it has a very different legacy um, than either of those movies. But, it, but it's very mm. that. It's very much in that genre of sisters are doing it for themselves, which is why they have the <laughs> rhythmic song in the soundtrack. Um, which is the first time I'd heard the Eurythmics outside of Christmas music. So it's mm. a lifelong love affair. Mm, interesting. And just thinking back to another point you made before, you mentioned about Win and Grace. Um, if memory serves correctly, um, as you said, that back then it was seen as somewhat subversive, but also loud and proud to start featuring um, gay people without, without them having like, horrible lives yeah. or things are going wrong in their lives uh will and grace well the well, looks of it it came out in 1998 so two yeah. years after this um on it quite quickly afterwards came queer as folk us which was in 2000 so you were starting to see some real different representation and people uh, and more than anything else um lgbt people that were uh, well, for the most part, happy in their lives. Of course, like queerest folk had to show them all having drama yeah. <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. But to show them having success and actually having domestic lives was quite a, an important thing. So it's interesting to hear this movie um, represented that as well, in some sense. It also represented otherness in people like, so Bronson Pinchot, who I would say this movie kickstarted his career in, in another way. Um, so Bronson Pinchot plays this kind of straight interior designer who's really bad at his job. Um, and he plays Brenda's kind of new boss after Morty, her husband, throws her out of the business she helped him build, uh, which is kind of the Brenda plot besides uh, Bette Midler's character wanting to become a healthier person. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a health-related 
subplot to do with food. And so if you haven't seen this movie and you have like uh, eating disorder issues, it might be a little bit difficult to watch mm-hmm. just because of that. Uh, but this was 96 and it's not as bad as I'm making it sound, but it's also just like very much of the time period it was. Uh, but Bronson mm-hmm. Pinchot plays uh, Duarte Feliz, just straight interior designer who is very campy and could be read as queer. Um, mm-hmm. We don't ever actually see him with a life partner, so it's possible Bronson was playing a queer character, but Bronson is also known for playing really flamboyant straight characters like Balky from Perfect Strangers, um, mm. who was this kind of eccentric European cousin that came to America to live with his cousin. Um, and then Bronson also, I don't know how much theater he had done, but in 95, he did a Sondheim Review, which is also the first time I saw John Barrowman anywhere. Um, so Bronson Pinchot, although we don't know if they're queer or not in this film, mm-hmm. plays this very eccentric, but still very grounded um, character who agrees to do the plot because he loves Brenda um, in a lot of ways as for both her friend and her boss. And he wants mm. her to find joy within herself. Um, like all the women have those characters around them that want that for them. And mm. their ex-husbands are all just, you know, scum. Um, <laughs> one of the ex-husbands goes on to play the dad on Seventh Heaven as well. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing to, to uh, think about as, as well. Also, Victor Garber, who played Jesus in God's Bell, is one of the scum uh, ex-husbands. And that's always kind of weird and interesting mm. uh, to think about. Uh, Stephen Collins, that was the one that went on to yes. play Seventh Heaven. He plays Which, Aaron, uh... who cheats on Annie with his therapist, played by Marcia Gay Harden with the cutest pixie haircut. I've ever seen in a movie. Marcia Gay Harden's makeup and hair artist did so much good work in the like, she's in two scenes near the beginning of the film and just the way she uncrosses her leg in that nice fatal instinct sort of way, that kind of metallic silver blue blouse she wears and the haircut. Oh, it's great. She's not a lesbian, but like it's everything you want from like your strong femme character. Mm. Oh wow, I can see what you mean by contrast. That Stephen Collins, who who was speaking about before, in Seventh Heaven, he played a, a reverend, a, a Protestant minister, and it was it, it was done in 1996 as well. Talk about oh, yeah. roles. So the the, the ex husbands serve a very particular device in this film, which mm-hmm. is the same device they serve in the book in some ways. Um, it's not just, sh- it's to show that they were coddled and they were supported. So they're not really necessarily scum at first. They don't start out mm. this way. This isn't a movie about like abuse in marriage. Mm. This yeah. is about the idea of how people support each other. And as they move into different phases of their lives, how things mm. can go wrong. So like for Aaron being married to Annie, they had been going to therapy. And the whole thing was, is he started seeking the comfort of his therapist and they go from being separated to fully divorced and then she pulls the rug out from under him Mm. Um, and in the book she ends up going to like Japan or something like that and like there's this really great subplot with her aesthetically finding joy in little things um, that you don't get from the movie but the but the book again is not a comedy 
Like if you're going into the book expecting the movie, don't expect that. Um, yeah, but but Stephen Collins plays kind of a gross scumbag in this film, <laughs> but it's it's for it's for plot purposes. It's not like gratuitous scumbaggery. It's you know, and at the end of the movie, when he's like feeling feeling the burn, he's like, I, I'm I'm approaching fifty. No one's gonna hire me. I can't start over. And Annie's like, Yeah, sucks, right? You know, Welcome to my world. That. Yeah, it's basically that. <laughs> and then she throws back the phrase from her therapist's face and she holds up her business card and she goes, Aaron, grow with love. Or like grow <laughs> from love. And it's the exact phrase that Marcia Gay Harden said at the beginning of the movie. It was like the title of her book or something. And it's just this amazing moment where like he's tried to dominate her. He's tried to yell at her in this boardroom. He's just watched his advertising agency essentially bought out by her. And he like starts shouting and pounding his fist and she's like, nope, I'm not afraid of you anymore. It's this great moment for Annie for how they scaffolded her, her growth and her self-esteem to almost get back to who she'd been in college when she'd been an activist. Um, so good. It's so good. Interesting. It sounds then like it's the accumulation from the film over the duration of it of her own self-empowerment to the point where she feels empowered now she could stand on her own two feet and he rails against the fact that everything's crashing around him and almost as if she should help him for how because of how they were oh yeah and you see this happening at the same time because this part of the film is a montage where each ex-husband is getting the same exact speech from their ex-wife in a different way. And this is the part of the movie where it really changes into kind of the finale where everything we've gone through has come together. And it's this really great montage of Dan Hedaya, Victor Garber, and Stephen Collins all kind of getting served in a different way. Like Dan Hedaya's in a meat locker with the mob uh, Victor Garber is being threatened with like a Barbara Walters interview, which in the 90s is like a really big deal. Um, and Stephen Collins has just lost his business. And this is like the, all of the women have gone through these self changes and now it's time mm. to use the capital the men have built on the back of the women in order to make mm. all women's lives better. This movie was not meant to be like, um, like enough with Jennifer Lopez or the movie where Holly Berry has to kill her ex-husband whose name I can never remember. Um, this is not a movie about divorce coming out of abuse, which is a different genre. This is, you know, a movie about divorce leading to empowerment in the next act of your life. And so like, when you think of mm-hmm. movies that come after this, like John Tucker Must Die or The Other Woman, they're trying to use the formula, but they don't really push it far enough. Um, no. Yeah I, yeah, I will say the First Wives Club TV show does, and I'm also glad that it's a POC-focused cast, because there are no people of color, really, in First Wives Club. Um, you've got Dan Warwick and Billy Porter on the soundtrack, but First Wives Club, for all the reasons I love it in 96, is a very much like white New Yorker movie. I think mm. really the only the only character that actually has a really super authentic time struggle in this film is probably Bette Midler as Brenda because mm. her husband has left her with virtually no cash. So like okay. Annie and Elise, Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton, 
are relatively cushioned even in their divorces. Brenda, is, it's not just about the divorce. It's about how financially unstable and how she's having to do things to survive, like how she had legitimately helped Morty, her husband, build up this appliance business mm. and how she wasn't paying, she wasn't able to pay rents at this point in, in certain points of the movie. Like, legitimately, she's one of the only characters in this movie that actually struggles with anything really realistic to divorce mm. women. Um, not that I don't love Elise and Annie's uh, journeys, but like, if you're thinking about like real struggle, I mean, first of all, this really isn't really the movie for that. This really is the movie with Maggie Smith judging Sarah Jessica Parker over lunch. But like, if you're looking for like the realness in this movie, it's really all about Bette Midler as Brenda um, and her desire, you know, to be loved, to be strong for her son and her desire to kind of survive and also missing Morty. She has a very complicated relationship with Morty too. Mm. Um, and Dan Hidea plays middle, plays a guy going through midlife crisis perfectly. Like he knows when to play whipped with Sarah Jessica Parker. He knows when to play snarky against Brenda. Um, you get it more in the movie. The trailer shows an extra scene um, of Brenda going like crazy at some kind of anniversary party, which I'm glad they cut from the film uh, mm. because it does not help Brenda's character at all. Um, and I have mm. to say the trailer is very disappointing as opposed to the film itself. Uh, Mm. Yeah, but, but Dan Hedaya does a great job, and I'm probably saying his last name wrong, but uh, Morty Cushman is a great kind of like, not quite greasy side character, but a guy that really <laughs> isn't comfortable growing into older age. And so part mm -hmm. of Shelley, part of Sarah Jessica Parker is him trying to stay, you know, young and powerful. Mm -hmm. When if you're married to Bette Midler, she's the most powerful person in that relationship. Let's be completely honest about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I have a comment to make about subvert subversion, but I shall mention uh, shall mention some quick reference. You were saying before about the fact there's no uh, people of color within this movie. It reminds me of when I was watching the Witches of Eastwick with my other half. This oh yeah, there's movie. no people, but that's that's yeah. that's an important point because yeah. that's part yes. of the new waspiness in Glen Finley. Yes, indeed. Um, I we were what so what struck me when we were watching Witches of Eastwick, they were doing a sort of town hall meeting outside, and like there was white chairs, white people in one massive square, and I said to him, "It's pretty white out there, isn't it?" And after yeah. that, he could not. He paused the movie every now and again when there was crowds of people, and he was making an effort to see if he could see any diversity. But it kind of shows the, the theme of the movie of the small town, small-mindedness element. Well, from, well, if we ever talk about Witches of Eastwick, uh, there, mm -hmm. that's actually a plot point in, uh, in the book series, because it's a series mm -hmm. of books, and the Witches yes. of Eastwick became the movie. Um, I would argue that Dan Hedaya as the Italian-American type of character, and Uncle Carmine, who's kind of the mob character, they are mm. the most POC people in this, but they're definitely, you know, kind of that white passing, but it's not, it's one of the things in 96 where it was more about the fact that they were making this kind of almost revolutionary movie for women 
And so mm-hmm. they probably weren't actually thinking about POC casting as much as we got Elizabeth Berkeley, we got the Midler, we got Diane Keaton, we got Goldie Hawn. Um, yes. You know, so it's one of those things where like, I want to acknowledge it, but I also want to acknowledge the things that work in the movie. There, the, There is an Asian side character, which is the character that Chris is on a date with, mm-hmm. um, who does have a very small speaking role. So there is a POC with a speaking role in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a very white film. And like, if you're gonna watch it, just realize, you know, I don't wanna give 96 a pass because I think in 1996, there were probably already the conversations, but the movie is yes. doing so much work for women. I can't, it, it's one of those things where like, you have to say it, but you have to be like, and a butt, and you feel bad for the butt, but the butt is definitely there. Yes. One can, this is the thing. We have to acknowledge something as a product of its time. And we can be honest about, you know, where it was failing. And that should be talked about. Um, but dare I say at the same time, again, we have to acknowledge it's part of its time and how that helps to inform us nowadays. Because uh, certainly it seems that they've made an effort with the new TV series from what you're saying to um, address this. Um, so I'm quite, I haven't seen anything about the television series. I only found out about it when we were discussing about uh, doing this uh, podcast on the movie. Yeah. It's another example of me finding out about something that exists that I didn't know about before. And well, I, I don't I, think yeah. I'm ever going to stop finding out about things that I don't know it, that don't exist. Well, um, and I haven't seen it because it's on a streaming service that I don't have access to either is part of it is that when we get these things, especially in kind of our new world, if they happen on a streaming service that I don't have at the time, you know, like Peacock has been doing some great stuff for NBC that's supposed to be these new original series, but I can't watch them. I one, don't have the money. I two, don't have the time. I would also like to retract my previous statements uh, because Bette Midler and Dan Hedaya play uh, Jewish characters. So, you know, it's not necessarily POC, but they do, it's not all like Protestant wasp whiteness, which is kind of the problem with Witches of Eastwick, but Witches of Eastwick is also about that because in the books, it's about revolution and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The follow-up Sons of Eastwick is all about republicanism. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's a very interesting thing, but I just wanted to be like, I'm aware of how very white this movie is, but that's... (laughs) It's just one of those things where you have to go into this movie knowing that it has this kind of white, almost upper class vibe, but not quite, because class mm-hmm. is a part of this film. Um, Maggie Smith's character is the embodiment of class. Um, the idea of Elizabeth Berkeley's character, uh, Phoebe, coming in from another place, coming into New York society, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker trying to come into society expressly Mm. and become someone of status and importance. The mm. idea that Jennifer Dundas is in university, but also has time to intern at her father's um, company without anyone batting an eye. Like, so there's there's levels of like class and power here, yeah. but it's not, you know, they, there's references to Jackie Kennedy at in, in the auction scene, which is a really great uh, Maggie Smith scene in the movie, actually. Maggie Smith and Sarah Jessica yeah. Parker um just maggie smith leading sarah jessica parker to the slaughter like a lamb 
oh, it brings me such joy to think about. Uh, and on a side note, why touch on my point of subversion? Um, I love it when I see well-known faces, actors and actresses that I know about in different roles, interacting with people, with each other, possibly starring together in something I've never seen them star together in. It, I don't know. It, it just strikes me as quite humorous sometimes. I'm not talking about a Marvel level um, thing here because dare I say uh, the MCU will eventually cast every actor and actress it gets its, its hands on as heroes, villains, or side characters in its productions. It, it's just going to keep going on and on. They'll eventually manage to get their hands on people that are playing DC heroes and start casting them as their own characters as well. It, it's almost like a who's who at this yeah. point. But uh, yes, but more for me, I enjoy seeing well-known faces acting together in scenes. Um, there's just something about it that makes me smile. Um, but anyway. Um, Club gives me the same feeling in that manner mm -hmm. that The Holiday does, which is one of my mm -hmm. favorite non-holiday holiday movies. Um, Cameron Diaz, Jude Law, Jack Black, and Kate Winslet are exceptional. Yes. Um, another Great. case of not many people of color, but that's not really what the movie is about. And so there, that's another case of uh, one that could have used more POC representation, but was a really great mm -hmm. movie um, on its face. And it's one of my favorite non-holiday holiday films. It's The mm -hmm. Holiday. So, um, yeah. So to, the, the thing about subversion that I wanted to bring up, um, from everything that you've been saying, it sounds like one of the major underlying themes about this film is the subversion of the almost traditional viewpoint that people meet, they marry, they get together, and afterwards their lives are fine and perfect. Like, you know, whatever troubles there are, are below the surface and never interfere. This movie though, it subverts everything. It's about people actually, they do change over their lives. They don't stay static, that they do get divorces and people have lives after that. Um, other things that you've said, like the um, interior decorator who's not gay, but actually straight. But it might you know, be gay. It's they, never it really gay, discussed, but it's- Sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Might be gay. Um, the daughter who's an out and proud lesbian, um, you know, a subversion of the traditional good daughter role sort of thing. It, it just sounds like there's so much, so much here that's going, going against um, what the view of family was in back in the day, but not in a bad way, but in a way that brings out realism in a sense. This is very much a found family movie without it being about queer found family. This is a found family in the same way the Golden Girls is about found family mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, there's a few really great scenes that I'll kind of pluck out to talk about the idea. So there is a very frank conversation about how they've supported their husbands. And, and if you watch the trailer, the scene where they're all putting their like uh, a, a old wedding rings in like... Um, old wedding rings in champagne, that's that scene. But they have a very frank discussion about the different ways they've supported their husbands. 
in the past, they're now ex-husbands. Um, and this mm -hmm. is after the floor has been ripped out from under, from under each of them for various mm -hmm. reasons. Um, this is also a movie about kind of confronting your own demons. Uh, Goldie Hawn's character, Elise, has a really great subplot about alcoholism. Like, mm. it's a very real thing. She's very real in the need for it. Uh, there's a really great fight where Bette Midler does this great affectation of who? Guns and Roses? Where she, like, pops the O in Roses in this really great <laughs> moment. And then they have the best line in the film, which is this line that I quote, constantly where Goldie Hawn as Lee says, you think that because I'm a movie star, I don't have feelings? Well, you're wrong. I'm an actress. I have all of them. And then she's like <laughs> spilling her martini in her hand. And it's just, it's the best. And I'm not gonna lie, I have quoted that scene to so many people and about half the time I just get like a look. But some people go, ah, Fruit Slides Club. But no, there's this great scene with Elise where, um, there's a breakdown because she can't get revenge the way the other two are getting. Victor Garber's mm -hmm. character is really good at what he does, um, mm -hmm. but he's a jerk. Um, so he's not actually, it's a really interesting thing because Elise's journey, uh, the idea of standing on her own two feet, the idea of transitioning from, you know, going from wanting to play science fiction, share babe cop, to actually doing a play where she plays someone of her own age. It's very much, almost Betty Davis in All About Eve, in a way. It's really hard to explain without you having seen the movie. But Elise's journey to self-worth is not necessarily about Bill, but mm. it is. A lot of it is about how she's medicated herself. A lot of it is about how she surrounded herself with herself. There's this really great pop art Andy Warhol-like painting of her in her home. Um, she has to clean out the, the places that she shared with her husband, um, which is a part of like giving him alimony, which he is very shocked by. And like, so they come into her apartment and it's just <laughs> stuffed with everything Elise. Like there's like this, there's this need in Elise to be needed, to be wanted, to be out there, to be seen. There's a provocative idea about how she's more sexually adventurous <laughs> than the other two um, mm. and that she always has been. And it, it comes to a place where it's really about her alcoholism, which is one of the only things in the book that stays in the movie. And it's not always pretty. Um, Elise is done as this very like pretty character, but not everything Elise goes through is pretty. Um, and just like when she, when she shows up to Brenda's apartment after their fight and she's like, I've never been to your apartments. It's so real. Like those are the first things out of her mouth. Like the idea of what is real to Elise and how much she has been medicating, how much there's been this echo chamber and how the other two women in her life pull it out of her and have her try something new that brings her such great success. Mm. And then Elizabeth Berkeley, who wants to be her is now following the same trajectory. It's a very brief glimpse of Elizabeth Berkeley in the audience of the play that Elise does. Um, but it's also like how Elise has potentially stopped Phoebe from going down the same path that mm -hmm. she went down and how there's like this way that she's potentially affected Phoebe's life. We never get that. Um, th there's never that confirmed in the script, but I always kind of took that mm -hmm. um, in that she's stopped Phoebe from 
going down the same path without even knowing same the same spiral of self-destruction yeah because that's that's what phoebe wants phoebe wants to be elise but it's herself and she just has no idea how to do that like she's not empty in the same way that shelly is but phoebe is very young and doesn't know who she is Mm -hmm. and she's really glommed on to the idea of elise elliott as the star and the provocation and like just the reality that elise may have personally changed her life without even knowing she'd done it um mm. it's it's really great it's it's a good time for for all mm. it sounds like there's quite a bit of hidden depth to this movie despite it being um by the sounds of it like a quite involving comedy and yeah, stuff you can do you can do a comedy with a lot of depth like uh like when i think about the bird cage there's so many different ways to look at oh, the yes. bird cage um, but like First Blood's Club has a lot going on in it. It's in a mm. lot of ways, the reason that it grossed $181 million, mostly domestic, is because it was filling a void that didn't really exist. I mean, in 96, mm-hmm. there weren't really a lot of divorced women having successful lives in pop culture. Mm. Like, you didn't see it much. No. It was very revolutionary to have done. Mm. Um, I mean, even the Golden Girls, they were divorced to their husbands had passed on or left, but they were, the the Golden Girls finished, I think about four years before the movie came out. I think it was 1992. Um, They, but the the women, the Golden Girls, um, in a sense, even though they were still working and such, they weren't necessarily pursuing success and such. The theme, the, the whole, their, for them, it was more the camaraderie. They're looking for um, relationships and companionships, etc. I, I totally get what you're saying. This was a totally different thing of women that were still seeking to find their own way, to, in a sense, to build their own way after coming through such hardship. Yeah, and I'm just looking at the IMDb, someone listing 15 best movies about divorce to quote unquote help you move on. And none of these movies are all that healthy for the women. Uh, both versions of The Parent Trap have the woman returning to the man who, who decided they were going to split up their kids. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer, Mrs. Doubtfire, Waiting to Exhale. I'd even add Truth Beverly Hills to the list of movies about women whose lives improve from divorce. But in 95% of the movies, they go back to the man. Now, Brenda, um, and I'm going to spoil this, so you may want to like put your fingers in yours for two seconds if you want, but Brenda's kind of subplot is finding her way back to Morty, but Morty's subplot is also finding his way back to Brenda, so there's actually a very even thing of meeting in the middle somewhere, of changing mm-hmm. who they were without knowing they were going to meet again. So it doesn't feel like Troop Beverly Hills, where Shelley Long and the guy from Coach um, get back together at the end where it feels like it has to be that way. It doesn't feel like mm. the parent trap. It has a very different vibe to it. Um, but every woman in this movie has kind of a different ending in a way. Uh, and they all kind of, they all feel both of their time and satisfactory. Uh, you don't mm. actually mind that Brenda and Morty get back together because it was obviously something that bought Brenda great pain. She actually Steel has very deep feelings for Morty throughout the film. Um, mm. it, it's a really interesting, like, it's not wish fulfillment, but it kind of is. 
it, it, mm. it's in that very kind of interesting headspace where life is a very complicated thing and they're yeah. showing that complication and it works out really well for me i think i do like the sound of that um it's not often shown the fact is that people sometimes when you become comfortable in a relationship and um things are going well so to speak but then perhaps things don't start to go well because you're so comfortable and you don't realize that you should have some self-reflection and change yeah. it almost sounds as if that these two people needed to go um for a bit of hardship in order to be able to look at themselves and to realize like who they want you know what was unhealthy for them as individuals and what they need to change but at the same time come to the realization that actually i do still have feelings for someone and we can make it work but we've got to be able to allow ourselves to grow in new ways and to acknowledge to each other that it's we've also, changed it's also about age appropriateness of where you are in life so in the way that dorothy and stan hover each other um during the course of the golden girls uh, it's mm. the same way that Brenda and Morty keep meeting in this movie in different phases of their changes. And where mm. it's played for laughs in the Golden Girls because Stan just won't give Dorothy up and they just keep crashing into each other. Here it's very much like Morty's not as much of a villain as Shelley is. Shelley mm. is really the catalyst for all the things that Morty does that really hurt Brenda, except for the one major thing, which is deciding um which is deciding to like have her leave the business that they build together mm -hmm. but that's also catalyst from shelly is why that happens um mm. and so really <clears throat> morty morty is a bad guy in some ways but morty's also not a bad guy and what you see of brendy and morty's relationship is satisfying at the end of the movie when they're together but they don't end the movie together. She still ends the movie with Elise and Andy as Brenda, having learned about herself. So it's not like she leaves the movie with Morty. It's more like no. she has Morty again, but she also has her independence. She has mm. her worth. Unfortunately, she's lost weight, and that's a big part of her subplot. Um, but that's also something from the book. So that could also be a leftover from the book in a mm. way, because she's a much, I don't know how to say this, she's a much heftier presence in the book. They make a lot more of a deal about her weight mm. and about her body structure in the book than they do in the film. So in a way, the film is better because it smooths out some of those things that are a little mm. bit like very 1992. Uh, but she also has yeah. a lesbian subplot in the book she doesn't have in the movie. So you kind of have to decide what you want there, so. <laughs> In, it does get interesting. It sounds like another example of a hangover from that period. You know, oh, yeah. it almost sounds as if it was like the author's intention was, I'm going to discuss um, real problems for real women. But it sounds like it was sort of done in a way that wasn't totally res respect respectful. And like dealt with the with the needed nuance of that. Well, but in the early nineties, it was still very in vogue to like mm -hmm. diet and things in a way that people are now pushing like keto diets, which is just new fancy term for Atkins, quite honestly. Um, 
you know, that was kind of the thing in the 90s of the idea of, you know, thinness, the idea that somehow you want to sit around like uh, Peggy Bundy, but you also want to be thin like Peggy Bundy, even though you want to sit around eating bonbons all day. It's a very much like, kind of like a trap thing. And Mm. it was a really easy way to show a lot about a woman's personality for how she approached food. Um, The movie Mm -hmm. She Devil did it with Roseanne. The TV show Roseanne did it with Roseanne. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how to do that, but it's it's one of those things where it was was a very easy trope in the 90s and we really didn't start addressing it. And Mm -hmm. it was just one of those things where that's a product of its time, but if you don't acknowledge it, Yes. You just, you kind of have to acknowledge it. It just is the way it is. And um, movies exist uh, in a finite space. Even if they're remade, the original exists. Dare I add another example to that? Um, how Mrs. Miss Babcock was treated when she gained some weight in The Nanny. Um, cool little fact, the reason um, for that in real life is um, the actress, ah, I forget her name, but she was pregnant with her daughter, I believe, at yeah. the time. So, but they you they made this whole plot about Miss Babcock overeating to compensate for not being able to get Maxwell as a thing. But I do think they were making a few, dare I say, fat jokes then at her expense. Which the nineties is not yeah. a great time for that kind of thing. I think the only oh. character on TV that I ever saw that was overweight that never got a lot of guff for it was probably Lori Beth Denberg on all that and then the character she played in Hanging with Mr. Cooper. I think Lori mm-hmm. Beth Denberg is probably the only overweight character I've ever seen on TV or in film that didn't have a special episode about her weight or didn't have that. I mean, even Raven Simone in That's a Raven had an episode about her weight, which is slightly jarring, but also it's a really good episode, but it's also jarring in context. Um, yeah. First Wives Club, I'd also like to talk about, because I don't want to forget, um, the music mm. in First Wives Club is done by Mark Shaman, who is Ooh. an openly queer uh, composer, lyricist, songwriter. In fact, um, after California Prop 8 passed, which banned gay marriage, uh, which we had already had and then got rid of, uh, he's actually one of the people that worked on Prop 8, the musical. Um, which was a three minute uh, sketch. And so he was kind of like the Rachel Bloom of his time and that he was doing all stuff in the nineties. Um, and he'd worked with Bette Midler a lot. Uh, he did stuff in her discography, like Big Business, which is where Bette Midler plays her own twin along with Lily Tomlin playing their own twin. Uh, not a well-paced movie, but if we talk about it, I'll talk about the pacing. Uh, Beaches, which is the movie that besides the Rose, Bette Midler is known for really well. Uh, the music of Sister Act, which is why Sister Act has almost the same feel um, in music as, as this movie, Sleepless in Seattle, mm-hmm. Adam's Family Values, at least I don't think he did Adam's Family. No, he did Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values, both Sister wow. Acts, City Slickers 2, um, George of the Jungle, Patch Adams, my favorite um uh, I think he also did this that I saw. He also did my favorite Brendan Fraser movie after The Mummy, which is uh, Lasting Something. The one where he played, Brendan Fraser played the guy stuck in the, um, 
stuck out of well, time because his parents put him in a blaster in the past. Blaster in the past with Alicia Silverstone. Um, he did the music for that. George of the Jungle. Uh, he did the music for South Park Big, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, too. <laughs> so uh, this has been, um, he even did movie, he did music for Mary Poppins Returns, uh, Tick, Tick, Boom. He has a cameo appearance in it. Um, it yeah, so there's wow. a lot of, oh, Down With Love. Uh, he did Down With Love, which is great. So, yeah. Well, a catalog of names, like, it, that, that's impressive, honestly. Yeah, I, I really wanted to talk about uh, Mark Shaman. Oh, sorry. Uh, Hugh Wilson, who directed First Lives Club, was in Blast from the Past. That's what I had seen. I had, I had gotten that wrong, and I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the, the music in this has a really queer history because Mark Shaman is an openly queer composer, is you know, a large chunk of composers, if they're not openly queer, are definitely queer. Um, I'm trying to think there there is this is also a very new york movie um mm. this is definitely love letter to new york in a time period kathy lee gifford is in this movie ed koch and gloria steinem have appearances um ivana trump has an appearance but she plays like I, yeah she she's in the trailer I was it's a, a quote to... of the movie <laughs> it's yeah. i was trying to find a good way to mention the fact that there have been a trump cameo but thankfully I mean, not trump cameo in the nanny too because he was like oh. a new york icon then and we didn't know how bad it was going to be in the 90s some people probably had an inkling but most of us in the other parts of america did not um and but ivana trump has that great line of don't get mad get everything which is in the trailer and in the perfect spot in the movie as well um hmm it almost in a way she actually encapsulates this movie perfectly. Oh God, Ivana Trump is fabulous. Yeah. I mean, she, wasn't she his first movie. wife? She was. I. 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 I don't. Maybe she was. She was a wife of his, unfortunately. Yes. For her. Um. But. Mm. But yeah, she kind of encapsulates the "don't get mad, get everything" thing. And so there's also kind of a glib nod to the materialism of being the divorced wife who goes for getting everything. But there's also all the people in the movie have been through some very harrowing, emotional, physical things. And mm. so it's also about the idea of how one reclaims themselves coming out of a toxic relationship, which Ivana has to deal with in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, and then the three main characters go off singing uh you don't know me by leslie gore with great joy and one of the best finales in a movie i think i've ever seen um mm -hmm. when people think of first wives club they think of this ending scene and this dance which is referenced earlier in the film as a tribute to their dear friend cynthia and it's a really great moment where the camera watches them do it and follows them and it's almost like at that moment, Cynthia is watching them perform like they did at her birthday party when they were in their 20s. And it's like the new start to the next phase of things. They've gone through all this. You know, Elise is no longer an alcoholic and it's and is dating someone. And she's dating the director of her hot new play, I think it is, you know. And there's Brenda and Morty that have found each other again. And Annie, who has told Aaron off in a myriad of ways and has a lovely lesbian daughter. And they get to do You Don't Own Me, which has themes from the 60s, 
which is kind of about, they graduate from college in 69. So they have a very distinct worldview they go into about activism and women's rights and women's liberation. And then they have this happening essentially a little less than 30 years later. Uh, and it's, yeah. Mm. So it sounds almost like a re-liberation again. Oh yeah, um, you could write a book on it. I'm sure you could write a book on it. Wow. Well, I remember someone's telling me once, if you're gonna do something right in anything you do, make sure you make the ending great. Because at the end of the day, that is what people often remember from something they've seen. Like uh, maybe they'll remember a bit of the beginning, maybe a few lines, quotes here, but the ending will often be the thing that yeah. people leave with. I mean, if you have a look, oh, what was that Tom Cruise film? I think that was his one. Um, Cocktail. I think that's the only Tom Cruise film I've sat all the way through. Mm, I forget. Ah, sorry. I, think I may have sat through Risky uh, Business, but that was before we knew Tom Cruise was crazy. So I get a pass. Mm. On that, I feel like. <laughs> okay, perhaps that was the wrong example. I, I will counter with the worst ending I've ever had in a movie, which is the very unsatisfying ending to Center Stage, where they re try to recenter Jody, who is not really the center of the narrative at that point, but. Mm. When we call, talk about center stage, we can talk about that. But first, Lives Club, when people think about it, they think about the movie poster with Diane Keaton, um, Goldie Hawn, and Bette Midler smoking a cigar on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And they think about their rendition of You Don't Own Me at the end of the movie. That's what again, again, subversion, like, you know, women smoking cigars. Wearing pantsuits, Diane Keaton's legs in this movie poster in these like 90s legs pantyhose with a short skirt and the man's blazer, it's very much Judy Garland and Summerstock where it's taking a male thing and subverting it into female wear, um, which is really cool. And Goldie Hawn could wear anything, really. Um, and they, they just, you know, and Bette Midler is just fabulously eccentric and eye-catching no matter where she goes, because she's Bette Midler. Um, so it sounds like this movie is not just a great product of its time, a great love letter to this era of both women, um, New York and filmmaking, but also um, it's a great example to show of how women were sort of like starting to embrace their identity and their own issues. And, and this is less can... than a year before Buffy too, because Buffy starts in mm. March of 97 and this came out in 96, so. Mm. You see, I love finding out about that because when you consider like, you know, Buffy was then and Sabrina was here and all of these things, a lot of them were running either succinctly or just started to run as something else was finishing and such. You could almost look back at all of these popular shows and films and see them as one long, long linear progression of themes and issues until we reach our current day. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where it was really gratifying, even if you didn't have full context and have lived your whole life, to really watch women owning who they were. I don't want to say that's what turned me gay, because it was David Boreanaz as Angel that really turned me gay. Um, <laughs> shout out to David Boreanaz. But watching how the women connected 
in different phases of their lives and even how they fought with each other because they did fight. Like they were very honest because you have that trip in movies sometimes where people are really unhappy and they don't talk about it. And mm. like, it's the reason you have a three hour movie. Like the, like there are so many things they both say and don't say in the fight they have about who they are and about who they are in relation to each other. Um, mm. The opening scene. So there's a funeral in the movie, which is kind of the catalyst for getting them all back together. And they have this really great moment where they do a montage of their space as they're, as they're doing lunch as three women that have just lost their friend. And they start off with their masks on about their joy and their happiness and their status quo and how great it is and how satisfied they are. And then as they start drinking and as then as lunch goes on, they just start going back, not into the, not just into the old patterns they have, at, you know, mm. as, you know, as 20 year olds where they were like in this kind of really young sisterhood because they were in a sorority together. But it's also about how they don't know how to be vulnerable with each other. And mm. they learn throughout the movie how to be vulnerable with each other. And they almost have to teach each other how to be vulnerable in a way. Um, it's not just about Annie having self-esteem. It's about how Annie learns to stand up for herself and it's about um, when Elise snipes at Brenda and makes a joke about how the only thing she's ever won is a pie eating contest that gets her slapped because that hurts Brenda immensely and Brenda doesn't say you hurt me Brenda just literally slaps her um, and it's <laughs> it's a really great moment where there's so many things said and unsaid and it's very real and that's part of why I struggled to call this movie camp I think it's a cult classic I think it's very hyper realistic I think it is very pop and very 90s. Just look at the cell phones they use and the computer they have. Um, it's also, you know, you can do a really great pop thing without going all the way to camp. And I don't think this would have served mm -hmm. the movie to have gone all the way into camp. I think you need the realism to offset the different spaces that are very lush and very upper class. Um, you do get a bit of campiness with Maggie Smith, but I think that's just because it's Maggie Smith. I don't think that's Absolutely. movie. I just think if Maggie Smith comes onto your set, that's what you're getting. And I don't mean that in yes. a bad way. I think it works in Hook. Um, I think it works here. I think it works especially in Downton Abbey. Um, it worked really well in T for Dames. I don't know if you've seen T for Dames yeah. or not, but it worked really well in T for Dames. Mm. Um, and Maggie Smith has just been doing this for a long time. Maggie Smith um no it was judy dench who made fun of herself in the uh in the staged thing was uh was really cool but yeah i'm mm. just looking to see if i can figure out what maggie smith has been in that i've seen mm. besides it but mm. just had a look at the clock sir we're running a bit over at the second so okay. maybe we should yeah. look to uh bring this to a conclusion uh the conclusion is if you haven't seen first wives club take some time if you have seen First Lives Club, see it again and enjoy it and bring your friends and family. It's not Jumanji, but it's still very good. <laughs> what a great um, advertisement for it. I but I, this is the thing, anything that we discuss on here, um, it's usually something that's worthwhile people's time checking out. And it's great to be able to discuss the classics and give brief, hopefully brief some new life into them again and what i mean by that is send new people their way that might not have 
seen or heard about it. Um, and to be honest, it, it sounds like it's such a great movie, and I will certainly be looking to check it out at some point soon. You're going to have the music stuck in your head long after you're done with the movie, but you're also going to have those quotes now. You're going to find yourself quoting the film. Uh, <laughs> do try to find the version with the correct music, because there is a scene in a ballroom where one of the versions of it, they've dubbed over the swing big band music with like a pop song that does not age well. Um, so try to, if you're watching a version and the music doesn't make sense, you're just watching a version with that one scene where it's a very bad music dub. But as long as that doesn't distract, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, right, okay, I shall keep that in mind whilst I'm trying to find a good version of it to watch. Yes, I'd let you Maybe borrow I'll my DVD, it. but it would be hard to ship it to you in time. I feel like I feel like Brexit <laughs> would put would put a would put a gum in that works. Uh, possibly, possibly. Right. Uh, before yeah. it goes, let's see if I can figure out where it's streaming. So it is streaming if you have Hulu Premium, if you have Stars, and it's on Amazon Prime, but it's probably not free. Probably um, not. But if it's something's worthwhile checking out, one can spend a bit of money for it. I mean, you can find the DVD for not too much money. It's been out for a while, unless they release like an anniversary edition. Um, yeah, which would be neat. Uh, but anyway, so that was great. And I very much appreciate spending the time with you listening to me yammer on about this fabulous movie. <laughs> and I've enjoyed learning a bit more about it and also having a good think about how this movie encapsulates such great themes from that era. Um, it's always a pleasure to have a, a good uh, in-depth discussion about stuff like that. Yeah, it's great. And now I'm going to take my fabulous white heels and I'm going to go kicking down a New York City street at three in the morning <laughs> where there is oddly nobody else around um, after having a victorious rendition of You Don't Own Me. So. Ah. <laughs> uh. Excellent, excellent. All right, thank you everyone right for listening in, and we'll definitely talk to you next time. Check out our YouTube archive if you'd like. Um, it's a great way to leave us comments. Um, everything is gay podcast. If you type that into the YouTube bar for searching, you'll find us very easily. Um, yeah. And currently up there, we have our episodes of Sabrina, episodes of the X-Men and the Golden Girls. And then coming up will be what is ever after that that we have talked about because all the stuff from our podcast goes into that after a month of being up in Anchor or wherever major podcasts are sold. Thank <laughs> you, everyone. And I hope you have a great evening. And remember, don't get mad, get everything.